Well, my name is John Fox, and I'm going to, uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, I have the pleasure of giving you a Christmas sermon. Uh, So prepare yourself. It is all about Christmas. Uh, We're taking a break from our normal jaunt through the book of Acts for a little bit for this week and next week. And uh, I think, yes, the week after even, and then uh, we'll get back into Acts. But for now, we're just going to take a little bit of a break. And today, uh, what I want to do with you is just run over the Christmas story. And uh, before we get started, we do have some books in the back of the room uh, at the table back there at guest services. So if you need a book, uh, this is not for you. Sorry, I should qualify. A child's book, okay? Child's book. So if you need a book for your child that is sitting here in service, then we have that for you. Uh, it's a coloring page. I think it has some stickers on it. So it will uh, help them uh, remember and know the Christmas story even as you're listening to it now. So if you need one of those, they're in the back. And uh, just as we get going, I, I realize that uh, this, <laughs> this time of year really comes with certain perspectives. It is a time of year that many people just love that they get uh, excited about, it, and they can't even necessarily describe why sometimes. And uh, my oldest son is like one of these people. Uh, they, he's uh, been asking since last Christmas, especially, like, when is the next one coming? And uh, that's kind of been general, but especially over the last eight months, it's been very rhythmic, very, uh, very patterned. Uh, the frequency has only elevated the closer that we've gotten to it. And so the excitement has elevated as well. And and uh, if you want to think about it, it's kind of like uh, the character Buddy off of Elf, if you've seen that movie, uh, that he just, he's so overcome with emotion and excitement uh, that, that it just pours out of him, especially when he sees Santa. Not that I'm talking about Santa so much today, but he, um, as he sees him, he just screams with delight. That is the same sort of thing that uh, a lot of people experience and uh, I know a lot of you are that way, and it can take some time uh, to kind of get there, but a number of the things probably get you about this time of year. Uh, If it's not the lights, then it's the treats, probably too too many treats. Uh, They don't stop coming, Uh, but there's the sights, the smells, the Christmas trees, hot chocolate, the cheesy music, all of it, maybe the binge watching on the Hallmark Channel, there's for some of you, uh, you kind of get wrapped up into this time of year. And there's all sorts of things that you really love to invest yourself in. Uh, For Christmas, you probably have a list of all sorts of things, and you know that all they're going to do at the end of the day is just take up more space in your house until a few years pass, and then they're going to go to Goodwill. That's just how it happens for you. And the the thing is, you probably like it that way. Uh, This is a, a, a rhythm, a pattern that you really like. And opposite of that, and opposite of my son's attitude, I would say, uh, are people who are probably more like myself. And um, this, uh, this probably came home to me last week as we're driving to uh, go to HEB because it's my day off. And what do you do for your day off but go to HEB with a family? Because that's, that's recreation in my phase of life. So uh, as, as we're headed there, then, uh, the, you know, the boys are just loud in the car and... I, there just seems to be noise everywhere. And so I just tell my wife, oh, the noise, the noise, 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 noise. To which she obviously responds uh, by telling me that I'm a Grinch. And 
I, I knew as soon as I finished the last noise, that's where things were going. And then I just had to respond to her humbug. So, um, uh, and a lot of you are probably like that at this time, that it's, it's really just a time where you can kind of pull inward. And if it's not the insane crowds of people, it's the crazy drivers on the road. And I have a theory about this. I'm sure that most of those people don't actually get out during normal business hours until Christmas. And then, and then of course, they come out and, and uh, it is, you know, just chaos out there on the streets. And, and so you may view Christmas that way, that it's a time really where it's just all crazy, all noise, and it's time for you to just try to um, remove yourself as much as possible. And you might only have one one present on your Christmas list, a sensory deprivation tank that you really just want to remove yourself from everything and, and get out of the noise. And, and so I'm sure that there's some of you like that here today. Uh, and uh, I'm certainly like that. I have more than one thing on my Christmas list, but there's, um, there's, that's a very real sense that comes along with Christmas. And I think we all know that Christmas is supposed to be more than that, though. It's more than just the kind of chaos or the seeking of serenity. Uh, there's more to it. And we know, especially in the church, this is the season to celebrate and remember Christ and his coming. And so there's kind of two dangers that we fall in naturally. And one is to be over-involved in the commercialization of Christmas, that all the things start going and, and we just throw ourselves into it. And the other is to just re- reject it and not celebrate it all. And that's not really the biblical option for us that we have with Christmas. And it has to be something else. We have to see Christmas differently. It has to be something that we celebrate, but we have to do so biblically. So the question is how? And this morning, I want to look at the Christmas story and pull out three ways to view Christmas. Just three ways. And we will run through them uh, like this. The first is the Christmas that we want. Second, the Christmas we need. And third, the Christmas we have. The Christmas we want, that we need, and that we have. And we'll be walking through Matthew and then Luke just to kind of get a, a timeline, the story of the, uh, of the Christmas story. So I'll go ahead and start that. You can read in Matthew 1, starting verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, like we heard in the Christmas story. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We can be so familiar with the Christmas story that we easily lose value of the shocking nature of it. And it is shocking. Uh, Things like the incarnation, angels appearing, prophecies, all these things. It is especially easy to not treat people in this story as real people. But they are real people with real feelings. 
So the first thing that we see here is that a young Jewish girl is engaged to a young Jewish man. And under the first point, the, the Christmas we want, we, we see there's some examples here. And here for the first one, Mary and Joseph, we see that they wanted a Christmas without shame. They wanted a Christmas without shame. And as we see them, it would be extremely shameful in their culture to have a child without being married. Shame would be attached to that. There's not the internet. There's not so many things out there to publicize their lives, but still it has a very close, tight-knit community, and everyone around them would have known that Jesus came not as a son of Joseph, but as someone else. And this produced for them shame, inevitably. But Joseph, he's a, he's a godly man, so he, what does he do? He doesn't, he doesn't want to just make this whole thing public. And he even actually had grounds, if this were true, uh, to even have her put forward for sentencing, for death, which we see also happens in the Gospels. And he doesn't do any of that. He just wants to be quiet about it and divorce her quietly, but an angel appears to him and tells him to do otherwise. And here we have to be careful not to say too much where Scripture doesn't, but it's easy to understand that Christ's coming, or Christmas, for Mary and Joseph, like this would have been immensely shameful for them. We even see a hint of this later on in the Gospels as Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. They bring it up in John 8, and they say, in response to Jesus, talking about who their father is, he say, they say, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So they, they kind of take a jab at Jesus and, and say, like, at least we know who our fathers are. And so we see uh, this had to be some part of Jesus's life, and it certainly was a part of Mary and Joseph's life. There was a large degree of misunderstanding, and that's something that they had to bear. The Christmas of inconvenience was not the one that Mary and Joseph wanted, but it's the one that they had. And not only that, but we also see a little bit more with the wise men. So let's keep reading in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler and will shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search for, diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. We'll get to Herod in a moment. But these wise men show up in the story out of almost nowhere, it seems, out of the east. And they came certainly not just with the three of them, but an entourage, as it was more likely that they were kings where they were coming from. And if you want to know kind of where they're coming from, it's probably left over belief systems from when Daniel was in Babylon. And he established some people who loved the scriptures and were looking for the coming of the Messiah. And so they come and they tell Herod. 
And when they visit Herod, what is it that they're looking for? So we talk about Mary and Joseph and their expectations, but the three wise men or kings also had expectations. And their expectations clearly are that this Messiah, this son, promised son, is supposed to be someone of notoriety. He's supposed to be someone who's, who's the coming the world would welcome and prepare for. And so what do they do? They go to Herod, who is the king of the region. Under the Roman Empire, Caesar left people to rule certain parts of the empire, and this was one that Herod ruled over. And so they go to him and say, where's the king? Of course, Herod, this was concerning to him and everyone else, because who's the king? He is. He's the power. And he hears that there's this other authority that's coming into the world. And so he secretly secretly sends them out wishing to kill the child, of course. And, and the, the men here have an expectation that is that of no, notoriety. The wise men thought that surely this king would have a famous birth, but he doesn't. He would be born in a royal palace, maybe, a place with wealth and reputation. Instead, what they find is he is born in total obscurity in the back of a barn, laying in a feeding trough. This is not what they expected either. Christmas for the wise men, the one that they wanted, was one of fame. They didn't want this remote, stinky, and highly questionable episode. They wanted pomp and glory, but it's not about what they wanted. So whether it's Mary and Joseph or the three wise men, what we see is that both groups of people have expectations about Christmas. They, they want it convenient. They want it to be about them in a sense. And that is not the story that we have. And I think there's a good tie to us here that we all want certain things from Christmas. You may want stuff, lots and lots of stuff. That may be you this Christmas and every Christmas. Others of you want the ideal family time and everything in its place. You want everything to be beautiful in the house and all the people coming over at the right time and all the right conversations. Some of you want some relief from all the noise, like we've said. And still others of you probably want to pass some legislature this Christmas that requires Starbucks to print Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. We all have things that we want Christmas to be, but that's not what the question is. The question is, what does God want Christmas to be and what has he made it to be? It's about God and not us. And so I ask you this morning, do you want Christmas, a Christmas that's just about you? Do you get so wrapped up in, in all the, the goings-on, the commercialization of it, that you completely forget about Jesus? Or maybe you think about him at night or when someone sings a song or lights a candle but does he really pervade your thought that this is about God and not about us? Are you afraid to associate with Jesus at this time of year? That's a real fear for some people. That they have to think about that. Like, will I, will I say Merry Christmas or do I say Happy Holidays when I'm out shopping? What do I do here? And I would just say, don't, don't be ashamed. I think it would be good for all of us probably to take some time, either tonight or tomorrow night or on Christmas morning, uh, just to sit down and read the Christmas story with your family. That's a great thing to do. 
Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2 are the stories. Maybe just sitting down with your family and doing that at night or in the morning would be a great way for you to just get your mind to rethink the Christmas story. Take your mind off of yourself. So thankfully, we see that God wants, what God wants for us is not exactly the same thing we want for ourselves. He wants worship for him. And there's only one way that that happens. And that leads to our, our second point this morning, which is not only the Christmas that we want, that's one view, but also the Christmas that we need. So let's keep reading in Matthew 2. After the wise men go out and find the child and then leave without telling Herod, it says this in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She confused, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now you might be thinking, why would you do that, Pastor John? Why would you read this passage about children being killed? It's heavy. And I have to agree, it is heavy. You probably don't hear many Christmas sermons on this passage, and you probably don't see many Christmas memes about it, something that would say something like, Herod, the man who killed a bunch of children at Christmas. That doesn't get around. And the story that we see here in Christmas kind of takes a, a strange turn almost into a grim fairy tale here. Something very dark is happening. And I was studying over this, and as I was doing that, I found myself reading through it and just kind of instinctually just kind of veering away from it because I didn't, I didn't really want to read it, and I didn't really want to teach on it. But at the same time, this is what God's given us. And it's good for us to see it and to hear it. And Why? Because God's will is better for us as we've already seen than what we want. God has something he wants. So what's happening here? Well, as, as painful and hard to look at as this is, it's a part of the story and it introduces to us, it's a very key part of the story, it introduces to us the villain. Any good story has a villain. And Herod here, as we see, is an evil king. But there's more significance to him than that. Herod stands out as the evil king of the world who persecutes and tries to kill the good king that has just been born. You see, Luke's point in writing this, as his gospel's engineered, is geared to people who are Gentiles, is to say that there is an evil king of the world and there is a good king of the world. And he includes this story to say that and also to point to a much older story that's going on. And you all know the story. We talk about this often. It's back in the garden. After Adam and Eve disobey by eating the fruit they should not have eaten, then God gives curses to the man, to the woman, and to the serpent. And to the serpent, he says this in Genesis 3.15, that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise your head, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It may be a little bit difficult to see in that translation, but the word offspring is actually plural. It's not singular. So 
the curse here involves off springs. And that didn't necessarily make it into too many dictionaries. I kind of looked at it. Uh, only a couple have it that way, but it's really off springs. So that's to say that there, there are two lines established here, two developments that will come forward. One is a line of the seed of the woman and all the people who bear the image of God. And the other is the seed of the serpent, the people of the devil. And we know that this isn't merely a physical thing because the next instance we see as this war continues that's happened is that it happens with the two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. That the first, the first two sons actually mimic the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent as one would kill the other. The evil would kill the righteous. And so we see that this is a war that's been raging since the beginning and all throughout time, all throughout the Old Testament and everything running up to the point of Jesus' birth, there are two peoples going on. The people of the devil and the people of God. And this is something for us that maybe you haven't thought about or seen as clearly, but you're in a war. There is right now a war going on for the glory of God and the destruction of man. It's happening all the time. And this is what we see in the Christmas story that Herod come forwards as this person typified as a child of the devil who seeks to kill the righteous man, the righteous son. You see, by the time we get through the story in the gospels here, what we see is that not the seed, the general seed of the woman, but actually in particular, the seed has come and he's come to wage war on God's enemy. If we were to fast forward in the gospels, we would see that Jesus is continually in combat with Satan and his realm. And just to give you a few examples here, uh, we see that when Jesus is led into the desert to be tempted by the devil, that the devil has authority and power over the whole world. That's what he offers to Jesus in exchange for worship. And Jesus even calls him later on in John, um, in John 14, the ruler of this world, right before his ascension or his passion, that he knows that he rules the whole world. Not only that, that he is, as Paul says, the God of this world who prevents belief in Christ. And then later Paul would say that Christians aren't to fight against other people when they're wronged. They don't fight like physically. Rather, in Ephesians 6, he says that the God of this world, it is him that we are to fight We wrestle against flesh and blood, against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. That there is a very real enemy of God and of man. So whether you realize it or not, you're caught in this war. And the Christmas story gives us the picture of this. That even though there's this birth of the Messiah, there is at the same time an effort to snuff him out. And all hope of God's goodness. Christmas reveals to us that we are in desperate need of being rescued from the power of the devil. That's a large part of Christmas. Only Jesus can rescue us from this power. That's why he came. The Apostle John says it this way in his epistle, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
And that may be a very different way of thinking about Christmas for you. You may not actually think of Christmas in terms of warfare, but it is. So on some level, we have to exchange all the tinsel and the lights and the color for hand grenades and machine guns or whatever other war imagery would be suitable for your mind. This is what Jesus came to do. You see, we have needs. We have wants, like we saw, but we also have needs. And if you aren't a believer, maybe you're just starting to see this, that you are in a war and that what you want is not necessarily what you need. Really, what you need is to be saved from the power of the devil. And you may be thinking, well, all this Jesus stuff is good for other people because it helps them feel better about themselves or generally contributes to a good society. That's one argument. But don't you see, if you think that way, it's because you are still under the power of a different kingdom, a dark kingdom, and not the one of the sun who we see as a kingdom of light. So this morning, do you realize this kind of concept and power of the devil? Or do you think it's laughable? Do you realize that you need to be rescued? Is that a, is that a key part of the Christmas story for you, that you need rescuing? Do you recognize the areas of your life that you hate but are powerless to change? This is evidence that you are a slave to sin, and need freedom. And this is what Christ offers us. So we see that there's a Christmas that we want. That's one way to view it. There's also a Christmas that we need. But lastly, we see that there's a Christmas that we have. We have seen the want and the need, and thankfully, in the need, we have the have. This is what Jesus came to provide for us. And so we're going to switch over now to the story continuing in Luke chapter 2. See, right after Jesus is born in the Christmas story, something odd happens. And we sang about it, we saw it to some degree, we read about it. But there are shepherds out in this field. And so we read in verse 10, And in the same region, that is in Bethlehem, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there will... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Something remarkable happens here. It says that the glory of the Lord shone around them. Maybe you haven't thought about that too closely, but that is an odd saying. And it's one that actually points to a particular word in the Old Testament. The word is Shekinah. And uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's a way of talking about God's glory, a very special kind of glory. You see, God's Shekinah glory was a glory that goes all the way back to the Old Testament when he's leading his people around in the wilderness. And it would show up either as a cloud by day or fire by night and a number of other things. But the most important way that this showed up and the most consistent way it showed up was in the Holy of Holies on the Ark of the Covenant. 
Shekinah means dwelling or settling. So this is the dwelling glory of God. It's where God would rest. It's where he, he would sit down amongst his people. And there was only one place that it would happen. And it was in the Holy of Holies. And if you were to go to see this glory, you would have to pass through multiple courts, multiple barriers to finally get in and see. And even then, if you were one of those people, you probably would die. It was only by rare exception that someone would live with the blood of an innocent lamb being shed on their behalf. And this is the glory that appears in the fields. This is odd. This is very odd. How is it that this glory of God, which was once so closed off and so separated from man, now appears in the wilderness outside Jerusalem with a bunch of shepherds who were most likely criminals, some of them? This is a very odd thing that happens. And so we see the response of the shepherds is fear. Well, of course it's fear. They're about to die as they see anyone in the Old Testament would. But the angel says to them something different. He says, what? Don't be afraid. Why? He says, because there's good news now. And the good news is joyous. The good news is that a Savior has been born. And not only born, but he's close by. And so the the shepherds get up to go see him. And and the angels sing with refrain, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There are two things going on in in this stanza here, in this statement of singing by the angels. First is a translation issue. And not to dig into it too much, but your translation may say, if you have King James or something like it, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. I think most of us has probably memorized that translation. It makes it seem like there's a general goodwill towards men with the coming of Christ, and that's true theologically, but that's not what it says. A better translation uh, in the ESV or uh, the CSB puts it like this, that glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. You see, God's peace here that is extended to man is very particular. It's not just general. This is a saving kind of peace. And it's particular for certain people whom God favors and loves. Only those who embrace this king that's born, King Jesus, will receive this peace. And these are the terms on which the angel announces the good news. He says the good news, literally the gospel, is this, a savior is born. And only on the basis of accepting this king is that peace received. Second thing that it means is that this is a, a peace which the men, I think, very, very uh, really got, were terrified that they wouldn't die. And so they didn't die, even though they saw angels. You see, this peace is not just a peace that must be received in believing the king, but it's also a peace that's extended from heaven by these angels. The uh, term in the original language for the angels is, uh, for host, is a military term. So it's not just a bunch of angels, you could say that, but it's more particular than that. This, these are regiments, soldiers, 
of angels that are here. So what is happening? The angels appear and these are soldiers who appear. So we see that heaven's armies come down to earth to proclaim not destruction, but peace. This means that heaven's armies are announcing peace to man. It's amazing news. This is gospel news. It's what, that God has drawn near to man, but man is not consumed. You see, back in the Old Testament with that Shekinah glory, there's no way that man would survive drawing near to it. So how can these shepherds survive? The way that they survive is by the very virtue of their occupation. These men are shepherds. And as they're watching over these flocks by night, these flocks are the ones just outside Jerusalem that are prepared to be sacrificial lambs for the sacrifice. They're watching over. Think about this. These men are literally watching over the lambs whose blood would pay for the forgiveness of sin. And then the angels appear to them and they say, there's peace. News from heaven. The war is over. Why? Is because the Lamb of God has come. As John the Baptist said, and he saw, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That these men saw, as the angels appeared to them, not just good news, but the best news. You see, there's a kind of Christmas that we want, and certainly a Christmas that we need. But the good news is that there is a Christmas that we have. This Christmas that we have is one where God has drawn near to man through his son on the cross, Jesus dying, suffering, and rising from the dead. It may not initially be what you want, but it is certainly what we all need. And the good news is that we have it. We want convenience like Mary and Joseph We need rescue. And the good news is that we have peace. Let's pray.